Well, we've come to the end of chapter 3 in our series in Genesis, and it's amazing for us to realize that there was a real-life experience of living in paradise. It wasn't ours, but it was great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa and grandma Adam and Eve's. There was a person who had a real life experience of living with God, the direct presence of God in complete innocence. It's kind of sad as we get to the end of Genesis chapter 3. In the last moments of Adam and Eve in the garden paradise with God, we see the hammer come down. That is the judge's gavel, if you will, as God pronounces his final sentence on the first couple. And our interest is on what happens to Adam since he is our federal head, our representative before God. When we see what happens to him, we understand what has happened to us. And that's where our interest normally lies. But if we would focus our attention on God, we will learn these three very important things from the end of Genesis chapter 3. That God is a holy God who will not abide sin. That God is a gracious God who promises hope for sinners. And that by faith in Christ we will dwell in God's presence forever. God is holy and he will not abide sin. It's firm and it's fixed. God is gracious and promises hope for sinners. That too is firm and fixed. And that we would live with God again forever in Christ by faith. That's the gospel. That's the grace of God. And we see it right here at the end of chapter 3 even. I want to go ahead and read all of chapter 3 so that it all goes together for us. Uh, But we'll be focusing on verses 20 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you and your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the, God, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What we see, Adam and Eve sin against God. They listen to Satan's word instead of God's word, choosing to be their own judges of what is good and evil. We hear God's words that curse Satan which include words of hope for man. Because the seed of the woman who will destroy Satan is Jesus Christ, the one who will redeem sinners and restore creation. And this, this locks us into the gospel. These words of God lock us into the gospel. We cannot talk about salvation apart from judgment, and we dare not talk about judgment without hoping in salvation, because salvation comes through judgment. And we hear God's judgment on Eve. Childbearing will be painful and marriage will be difficult. We hear God's judgment on Adam. Work will be toilsome and to dust he shall return. God affirms that Adam and Eve will surely die. And all of this is just terrible. It's terrible. And yet, surely the most terrible thing is their exile. Let us use our sanctified imaginations just for a minute. Adam becomes aware of his terrible transgression against God. He hears and he accepts God's judgment even his sentence of eventual death. But while he still has breath, and for however many days he has life, at that moment he's still in the garden. He's still with God. And then God points east and he says, get out. Not just get out of the garden. I mean, the rest of creation isn't so bad. It's not the worst that it could be. The worst that it could be is that God says, get out of my presence. I mean, I'm imagining that Adam is in shock 
I think Adam was resigned to receive his punishment, but he's shocked at his exile. I can't imagine Adam not being physically, mentally, emotionally in shock at the sound of God's words of exile. And we should be too. Because of Adam's original sin, we are all born in exile, which makes it a little different for us. We're conceived in sin and born with no right to commune with the Lord God, our Creator, so we begin life with denial rather than shock. I imagine Adam saying, but I don't want to leave your presence. And imagine God saying, you surely chose to leave my presence when you ate of the fruit. God doesn't just send Adam out of the garden. He drives him out. But not before we see God's grace. Even in verses 20 to 24, there are glimmers of hope and faith and grace in Adam and Eve's last moments in the garden. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. Why does Adam Adam give his wife a second name? He's already given her a name. In verse 23 of chapter 2, he called her woman because she was taken out of man. Remember the Lord God made the woman out of one of Adam's ribs? But here Adam gives her a more personal name. Adam has a new and a greater understanding of his wife now. She will bear children. Well, let me say it this way. She will bear children. She will be the mother of all living. So Adam names her Eve, which means living or life-giving or life, because she will give life to the race of man. Well, so what? What is that? What does that prove? Well, it proves that Adam heard God and that Adam believes God. Adam took this action because he heard God and he believes God. What does he believe? Well, he heard God say in verse 14, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Adam believes God's word that Eve will have offspring. He heard God say in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Adam believes God's word that Eve will bring forth children. Even in judgment, God has spoken words of hope for a future and for a Savior. And Adam believes God's words of hope. How? By faith. Why by faith? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, Eve's not pregnant yet. And Eve has no children yet. It's not until chapter 4 that we're told, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So Adam simply takes God at his word here. Right? 
How do we define faith? Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's hoping for children because he's never seen them. It's by faith that Adam is believing in the word of God. And by believing in children, he believes in the one child to come. Adam believes by faith, and Adam's act of calling his wife Eve is an act of repentance. In naming his wife Eve, Adam is showing that he he no longer doubts God's word, but he believes God's word. And not just about Eve bearing children, Adam believes in God's promise of a Savior through the promised seed. Adam has an explicit faith in the gospel. The promise of a Savior for him and a way out of sure death. It's as if Adam, or it's as if God asked Adam, Will you take Jesus Christ to be your Savior? And Adam does. Adam believes that the promised seed of the woman will one day come and do battle and win. And from this point on, the Bible is looking for this seed. The one God will send to save his people from their sin. Are you looking for a Savior? You should be. You're not in the garden, and the reason you're not in the garden is not because there was, never was a garden. The reason you're not in the garden is because of your sin disqualifies you from being in God's presence. And knowing that you are unable to rid yourself of sin, he sent Jesus to conquer sin and death and Satan for you. Will you take God at his word? Adam did. Will you have the hope that God has promised? Will you take Jesus to be your Savior, as Adam did, by faith? Believe the gospel and you will find the grace and mercy of God. It happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Verse 21. God responds, you see. God responds to Adam and Eve's repentance and faith with grace and with mercy. These, these verses, they seem, well, see, Adam, Adam named his wife and God gave him clothes. There's much more in here. There is Adam's faith in God's word. And there is God's response. He responds to Adam and Eve's repentance with grace and mercy. He covers their nakedness and shame. In the same way, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, God covers your guilt and shame. Adam and Eve tried to do this on their own. Do you remember? Remember they used fig leaves. They used fig leaves to hide their nakedness from one another, and then they tried to hide behind trees so God would not see their shame. But they could not cover their guilt and shame by their own efforts. It's futile. God sees us. He sees our sin and our guilt and our shame. He sees right through our fig leaves of self-righteousness. We can't hide behind trees of religious behavior or church attendance, our pathetic blame-shifting doesn't cancel out or conceal our shame. All the things we do don't work. Only God is able to deal successfully with sin. He clothed them. 
He clothed them. Is literally, he caused them to be clothed. He caused them to be clothed. It's not just a statement of fact. It's a statement of declaration. In the Old Testament, this phrase is used for ceremonial dressing, not just any old clothes. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 42, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him, there's our verb, caused him to be clothed in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out for him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. You see, Pharaoh declared something about Joseph when he caused him to be clothed. In Leviticus chapter 8, the Lord commanded Moses to cause Aaron and his sons to be clothed with the priestly garments. And in this way, he declared them to be consecrated as priests. In, in sort of a reverse usage, in 1 Samuel verse ch- or chapter 17, Saul causes David to be clothed in his armor to declare David to be his official champion, to go out and fight Goliath. But of course, David puts off Saul's armor to go fight clothed in the righteousness of God. Do you come at me with sticks? I come at you with the righteousness of God, David says. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4, in which the prophet Zechariah is standing in a vision given him in the presence of Jesus and of Satan... And Jesus says to Zechariah, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you. I will cause you to be clothed in pure vestments. In other words, Jesus takes away Zechariah's filthy garments and causes him to be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. It's a declaration that God is making in the garden. When God causes Adam and Eve to be clothed in garments of skins that he has prepared, he's declaring that their shame's covered now. The fig leaves didn't do it, but the skins do. Why? Because they have believed in the gospel of the promised seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. So many of the commentaries I've read say that God provided them animal skins to wear in, their, you know, in the new harsh fallen world. It's just a provision. And, that, and there's thorns out there, you know, so you need some clothes. God provided garments to protect them from the elements, from the main winners. Which misses the point. It misses the point. God shed the blood of a living animal in order to cause Adam and Eve to be clothed in a way that covered their nakedness and their guilt and their shame. There was a cost to cover the sins of men. The only death in the garden was a sacrifice. It was an act of mercy by God to sinners. It was a gospel act of restoration. It's a picture of redemption, not just clothing. Naked and ashamed, Adam and Eve bear the image of Satan, clothed in skins of sacrifice, they bear the image of God restored. And in this one act, we see the grace of God. Here they are, the first sinners, the world's first sinners, two sinners who believe the gospel and they're clothed by God. Are you clothed with the mercy of God? 
Are you clothed with the mercy of God? Have you put off the old man, put on the new man by the grace of God? Only Christ covers nakedness of shame and guilt of sinners. You need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you can be by faith in his promise. Let's pick up in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground which he had take, from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <clears throat> this is the third time so far in Genesis, that we hear God speak words to himself. The Trinity is deliberating. In chapter 1, verse 26, God deliberates before creating man. Do you remember? He, he delights in creating man in his own image and, and giving him dominion over the, all the earth. He, he talks about the plan. He talks about it beforehand. In chapter 2, verse 18, God deliberates before creating the woman. It is not good that man should be alone, he said. God delights in doing good. And the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed in the presence of God in the garden, and it was very good. And now, <clears throat> God deliberates over man's unfitness. It's different, isn't it? Now God deliberates over man's unfitness, his disqualification from being in the presence of God. All of God's words since verse 14 in chapter 3, have revealed the effect of sin on each of the parties involved, haven't it? The effects of sin on Satan. The effects of sin on the woman. The effects of sin on Adam. And here the words of God reveal the seriousness of the effects of sin upon God. God too must respond to man's sin. And he responds with both words and action. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So, in what way have we become like God? Well, it's not that we've gained all knowledge. We all know that's not true. It's not that we will now experience evil, although we will. It's true we have sinned and done that which is evil, but God has not, so we can't be like him in that way. It is, as we discussed earlier, this phrase to know. To know is to discern or to decide. To know is to take on our own moral autonomy apart from God and say that we will decide. We will decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. This is the position that Adam and Eve asserted for themselves when they took the fruit and ate of it in the garden. And Adam got what he wanted. We did too. In our sin, we all want moral autonomy. In our sin delusion, we push God off his rightful throne and take charge of our own lives, deciding for ourselves what is wrong and what is right for us. But in reality, we're just pretending. God is still God, 
And we've been fooled to think more of ourselves than we ought. That is our position apart from God. We're not in a position of power. We're not in a position of knowledge. We're in a position of danger. What ability have we gained except the ability to die? So God exiles us from his presence. We've lost the right to commune with God. Notice how God finishes his sentence in verse 23. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. At first we might say, God, God doesn't finish his sentence. <laughs> Wait a minute, there's an unfinished sentence here. I think it's miraculous to say that God finishes his sentence with action. He started with words and he finished with action. God acts. The God that we have to deal with is a God who acts on sin. Adam and Eve have to deal with a God who acts on sin. And there's an emphasis on God removing man from his holy presence in verse 23. In verse 23, God sent the man out from the garden. The actions repeated, so repeated means emphasize. And in verse 24, it is stronger language. God sent them out of the garden. God drove them out of the garden. The stronger verb to drive out, is, it's the same verb used to describe the, the man reaching out to take the fruit. So to keep Adam from reaching out to grab the fruit and take of it and eat and live, God drives him out of the garden. The question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? that God drove man out of the garden. Well, what would it be like to live forever as a sinner outside of the presence of God? Would that mean eternal life apart from God? Remember, the, the fruit does not contain in and of itself some magical power. It doesn't contain any redemptive power that we're aware of. It represents eternal life in the presence of God and His goodness. It's for those who would choose to remain in obedience and service to God. But Adam and Eve have opted out of that. The way to the tree of life was to obey God's commands to eat of it. But that way is no longer available to sinners. God shuts down that way to the tree of life. The only way to the tree of life now is by faith in the gospel. To believe in the promised seed of the woman. That's the only way back to the tree of life now. Genesis shows us that the tree of life was available to those who were innocent in the presence of God. But the book of Revelation shows us that once again, one day, the tree of life will be accessible to those who are Innocent before God in Christ. That's when the tree comes back into view. You see, Jesus must deal with our sin first, then the tree of life. Don't get the wrong idea. We won't need the tree of life then. We won't need it. I think we'll enjoy the tree of life. But we will need Jesus. 
And my argument is that Adam and Eve have faith, have Jesus by faith in God's promised seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head on the cross at Calvary. And so you might ask, well, well, can't they just stay in the garden now? Can't they just stay in the garden if they've placed their faith in the seed of the woman? And the answer to that is that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve and all their offspring, the entire race of man, are driven from the garden to work the ground from which Adam was taken. Dust you are. It's a terrifying moment. It's a terrifying moment when God drives people from the garden. He's responding to man's sin by driving sin from his holy presence. He sent Adam back to the dust from which he was taken. Out of the garden. But not out of the world. It's unspeakably sad. Can you imagine Adam's shock, the disorientation? And and now we're all strangers in the world. But what we learn about God is that he is unrelenting and unchanging in his holiness. I said at the beginning of our series in Genesis that the purpose of the book is to teach us about God. And as we look at God in the second half of chapter 3, in the curse and judgment and exile in verses 14 to 24, we've seen something we didn't expect to see. In the midst of his judgment we have seen an abundance of his mercy and grace. We have seen the promise of the gospel to be fulfilled in his once, his only begotten son. Now you may not have been prepared to see the goodness and the severity of God woven so tightly together, but they are. The goodness of God and the severity of God are woven so tightly together here. You should not be getting whiplash from looking this way to see the goodness of God and then that way to see the severity of God because you should be looking straight ahead at the one same God who is both. He is serious about his holiness and he is serious about his grace. God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden but he clothes them. God's not cruel. God drives them out of the garden but Not out of the world. God's not uncaring. God is holy and gracious. He is good and severe. He gives life and he takes life. He judges and he gives hope. And God does not leave himself without a witness that he is holy and that he is good. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God leaves a visible reminder of his glory. I think that's that's just kind of fun to think about for a little bit. God leaves a visible reminder of his glory. The cherubim, plural, that's just guessed to. And a flaming sword that is rotating, suspended in air, 
from what I can gather of cherubim, they also are suspended in air. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine them, you know, are they big? I think they're formidable anyway. And they do what Adam was supposed to do, guard the garden. But now Adam, rather than Satan, is not to be let in. And as counterintuitive as it may be at first, I think we have to take this as a mercy of God. I think we have to take this as a mercy of God to keep sinners from re-entering God's presence by re-entering the garden in their sin or by placing their faith in the fruit of the tree of life. Both would be disastrous. For a sinner to go back into the garden in God's holy presence, incineration, that's what I'm imagining, gone, or to place their, their faith in the fruit, like it's a magical fruit that will do something, both are disastrous. No, all hope is only and always in the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. That's the way forward. Can you imagine these cherubim? Probably also floating, like the sword, somewhere, I don't, in a meadow somewhere? I mean, it's just the countryside, right? There's some hills and some meadows and a river, and, and these cherubim. I mean, they would have been formidable. They would have been intimidating. And the flaming sword of God's justice turning towards you if you approach, Right? It's just kind of rotating, and then you walk and shh. Do not approach the judgment of God. I wonder how long they stayed there. How many days? Or centuries? I mean, Adam lived to be 950 years old. How many days or centuries could Adam and Eve and the generations to follow them go and see the cherubim and the sword. It beats that summer vacation to Mount Rushmore. Maybe up to the time of the flood? Maybe that long? We don't know. I imagine the sight of the cherubim guarding the way into the garden making clear in Adam's mind that he has indeed forfeited life. And the visible flaming sword of God's judgment making clear in Eve's mind her frailty before a holy God. In Scripture, these cherubim actually become symbols of hope in the gospel. These cherubim. The one guarding the gate, east of Eden. In Scripture... The garden, God's holy place, points to the holy place of God in the tabernacle, which he'll give dimensions for them to make, and then later, the temple in Jerusalem. And they all entered from the east, that's where their entrance was, and they all point forward to the new Jerusalem in Revelation. The holy place where God dwells with his people. They all recreate this holy place of God, and the cherubim follow the same biblical trajectory. In Exodus chapter 26, God gives Moses instructions in the building of the tabernacle to skillfully embroider cherubim into the fine curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. They guard man from coming into the holy place in the presence of God. In other words, the cherubim, they guard the holy place where, where God dwells. They stop man from entering. 
except once each year when the high priest is permitted to enter with the sacrificial blood of the lamb on behalf of the people. And to cover the Ark of the Covenant with a mercy seat of God. He has instructions on how to build that. And the mercy seat was made of pure gold. And at each end of the mercy seat, facing one another, were fashioned two cherubim with their wings spread over, covering the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where God would sit and speak to Moses. This is the seat on which the high priest would sprinkle, again, the blood of the Lamb. The place where God would be merciful to men. Are you beginning to see how the cherubim are being linked to the mercy of God and access to the presence of God? But only Jesus Christ gains full access to the presence of God. God accepted Jesus' atonement for the sins of those who believe in him. And the temple curtain that separated the people from God on which the cherubim rest is torn from two top to bottom as Jesus atones for sin on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. On the cross, the flaming sword of God's just judgment for our sin fell on Jesus. He became the curtain torn in two, that we safely pass through the judgment of God. Jesus clothes us. He causes us to be clothed in his righteousness. God declares us justified by faith in Christ. In Christ we are overcomers. And we enter into the holy place where the cherubim sing, Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Doesn't some of that sound like God's will for Adam and Eve in the garden? His job for them in the garden? His position for them in the garden? You see, everything that we lost, Jesus brings back. We receive salvation through God's judgment on Him. He redeems our souls. He restores us to the presence of God for fellowship with Him forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we understand that it is a mercy for you to tell us this true story. We understand that it is a mercy for you to let us know what it is that has happened. To let us know that you are unrelenting in your unending holiness. That we are transgressors in Adam. And yet, by faith in the seed, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who would crush our enemies of sin and death and the devil, we have salvation. Father, we thank you for him. We praise you for him. 
We long to worship you and live and serve you in him. This is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.